Would you all take your Bibles and turn with me to John 21, verses 1 through 17? I guess we'd start off with just a little summary about verses 1 through 17. It starts off with the disciples heading to Galilee because they just came from well-known feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Very exciting. Um, so they're going back to Galilee, and they are, ah, they just kind of didn't know what to do. So they were like, let's go fishing. And these are, these are professional fishermen. They, they were born fishing. They were that good. So they all decided to go. This was uh, Peter, John, the two sons of Zebedee, two others, and I believe there's one other. I can't remember his name. But a total of seven guys, they went fishing, and they fished all night. And I didn't know why that was important, so I figured it out. They would go fishing at night because they could then sell the fish fresh in the morning. So they're trying to make a little bit of money because you need that. Um, so they go fishing all night, and they don't catch a single thing. Now, I don't know if any of y'all are fishers out here, but if you go fishing for at least even a few hours, and you don't catch anything, you're pretty annoyed. But now these guys have just, they've made this long journey to Galilee, and now they stayed up a whole night fishing, and they don't catch a single thing. So I'd imagine they were pretty annoyed. So morning comes, and they come, and they start their way back, and they see this, this random dude on the shore, and he... Like, he has the nerve to ask them, have you guys caught anything? And they probably, pretty, pretty annoyed when they say this, but they say no. And he, this random guy, they don't know who he is. They're about 100 yards out. He tells them, cast your net on the other side, and you might catch something. Now, let me remind you, these are professional fishermen. They have been fishing for years. And now they're just going to believe this random guy just follow what he says to go fishing. That's, that's crazy. But I feel like they're remembering the first miracle that Jesus did with them where they, he allowed them to catch a ton of fish. And I feel like they were remembering that. Maybe they were thinking, maybe it'll work this time. Maybe it'll happen again. So they throw the nets on the other side and miraculously they catch 153 large fish, which again, if you've ever fished and you catch one, you're pretty excited but they caught 153, which is a pretty significant number. Um, after that, John immediately recognizes it's Jesus because no one ever just happens to throw their nets on the side and catch that many fish. He recognizes that it's Jesus, and he says so. And Peter jumps up, he puts on his coat, and he jumps into the ocean, or yeah, ocean, and swims basically 100 yards all the way back to the shore just to greet Jesus, which is a lot of dedication. Um, so eventually all the disciples make their way back to shore, and Jesus has a breakfast ready for them. He uses their fish that they caught, and they have breakfast together. Um, after that, Jesus kind of walks up to Peter, and he asks him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers, yes, of course I do. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. That same, scenario happen, that same scenario happens again where Jesus asks him, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I do. And then Jesus says for the second time, feed my sheep. And that even happens a third time. Now, I don't know if they were 
all in a row. I don't know if there was a conversation in between each of those times, but for the third time, Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says for the last time, feed my sheep. And that's kind of the end of verses 1 through 17. So for my first point, I'm kind of jumping back a little bit. But the first point is that Jesus forgave his enemies. I don't know how many of y'all were here on Easter Sunday, but if you were, you heard Pastor Steve talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and all of the gruesome death that he went through all the way up until he was buried. And... Just to add on a little more to what he said, he was talking about how a lot of people say that the resurrection didn't really happen. Some of the examples he gave were that, um, one of them was that the, I don't know, the disciples stole the body for one of them. And that doesn't really make sense because these are the same disciples that ran when Jesus was being delivered over to the Romans in the garden. So it's really not, it's really not likely that they're going to like, oh, you remember those, you remember the guards? Yeah, we're going to go take them out, and then we're going to move this two-ton stone and get Jesus out of there and then say that he was, a, that he rose again. That's not really likely. Another one was that the disciples lied about the whole thing, which, if you remember, the disciples got nothing out of it. They all died. They were all martyred for their faith. And a lot of people lie for a few different reasons. They lie for power, for money, for fame, let's just say women. But no one goes to their death over a lie. You don't lie about something and are willing to die for it. That's eventually at the end, you're going to be like, okay, okay, I was just, I was just joking. No. So it's not really likely that they lied. Um, another one said, a lot of people say that Jesus didn't actually die. He just passed out on the cross. He was mostly dead, if you know what I mean. Um, which is not realistic because the Romans were professional executioners. If they failed their job to crucify someone, they died. So, it's not likely they're going to just, oh, I didn't, it was an accident. I didn't mean for him to still live. No, that's not realistic. And then just another one that people say is that the disciples had this, it's going to sound kind of weird, they had this group hallucination. Like they all had this same dream and they all believed it so much that they, they died for it. They were so convinced. And that's, that's weird. No. <laughs> Who, who of you goes up to your friend and says, hey, I had this dream yesterday and I'm thinking about having it tomorrow. I want you to join me in that. People think you're a psycho and probably call the cops. Uh, so all that to say, Jesus went through this gruesome death. He did die and he experienced a lot of pain on the cross. You'll probably remember that Pastor Steve said that the nails that they drove through the victim's arms went through a major, um, a major like nerve point in their hand. So that was through both their hands and through their feet. So they were stuck on the cross and they're sagging down because they can't support themselves 
because they're in so much pain, which is hard when you're sagging down because you still have to breathe. So every time they wanted to take a breath, they would pull on those major nerve points in their arms and their legs, and they'd have to pull themselves up for breath and then just sink back down, still dying under the pain of what they're going through. And what I'm trying to say here is in um, Jesus forgave his enemies. He forgave the people that put him in that spot. In Luke 23, 24, it says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And he forgave as he's on the cross, as he's dying, he forgave the religious leaders who put him in that spot. And he forgave the executioners who are doing it to him as he's on the cross. Now, I know a lot of y'all have probably enemies in your life. And I just want to say, if you feel like, if you, if you see how Jesus can forgive in so much pain, can't you forgive that enemy or in your life? My second point, which is in the real passage that I'm talking about today, is that Jesus forgave his friends. And that, so in John 21, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So all that to say, Jesus came back. If you'll remember, the disciples ran away from him in Luke 22 and John 18, just for an example. They ran away in the garden. They were so scared. They were scared for their lives. And right when Jesus needed them the most, as he's being delivered over to the Romans, they're gone. They were not there. They were so scared, and they could not help Jesus, or they didn't want to defend him. So Jesus comes back to them. If one of your friends ran away from you when you needed them the most, do you think you're going to go have breakfast with them? That's just, no. He came back and he, had, he let them experience a miracle. He didn't have to do any of that. He could have just shunned them and just kept going, found some new disciples that might have trusted him a little more. But he, he let them experience that miracle. And in verses 15 and 17, talks about how Jesus is talking to Peter. Now, if you'll remember, back in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, or actually after that, Peter denies Jesus three times. He denies him, he denies even knowing him, that he has no affiliation with him. He doesn't know who he is. And I'd imagine this whole time, Peter's a little nervous because this is the same guy that he denied even knowing. And now he's, he's there and he's talking with him. So he's probably shaking a little bit. So the interesting conversation that they have where Jesus asks Peter if he loves him is, is pretty important. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, that can mean a few different things. It could be more than your job, more than the fish I just gave you, or more likely, more than the disciples do. Do you love me more than the disciples do? And what's important to notice here is that in the Greek, I've never studied Greek, so I'm not 100% positive on this, but the English word for love is a few different words in Greek. There's four or five of them, 
but the most common two are agape love and phileo love. Now, Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me with agape love? And that means sacrificial love, like a Passover lamb, or to put it in an example, the Good Samaritan. He had sacrificial love for the man on the side of the road. So Jesus asks him, do you love me with that sacrificial love? And Peter answers him, yes, of course I love you. But what's different here is he uses the phileo love or brotherly love. Like, I love you as a friend, not as sacrificial love. And I'll get to more why he says that in a second. But this same conversation happens again. Like I said in the beginning, I don't know if these were one right after the other or if there was a little conversation in the middle. I'm not sure. But Jesus asked him again, Peter, do you love me with that agape sacrificial love? And Peter answers the second time, yes, I of course I love you with uh, brotherly love. And by the third time, Peter's a little upset. And I can imagine he's remembering that conversation that he had in the garden with Jesus or after the conversation in the garden, where he denies knowing Jesus. He's remembering the three different times. So by the third time, Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter's a little upset, and he's, he's remembering. He's, and he, he relents. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. You know that I love you. But I, did, I forgot to mention this. The third time Jesus asks, he uses the, he switches definitions. He switches from agape to phileo love or brotherly love. And he asks Peter with, do you love me as a friend? And Peter answers with the same. All that to say, Peter feels convicted and he relents to Jesus and he says, yes, you know that I love you. And... I, can, I know, because from personal experience, there can be friends in your life that do something that really hurts you, that, that messes with you, and you still think about it. And Jesus forgave his closest friends for even knowing you. So don't you think you can forgive them? So we've talked about how Jesus forgave his enemies, and we've talked about how Jesus forgave his friends. And my third point is that Jesus forgave you. He died on the cross for your sins. Now, I want you all to think of the worst thing you've ever done. I know some of y'all think no one, no one knows about this. It's, it's too bad. But now I want you to tell three people beside you. <laughs> okay, I'm joking. Um, I want you to think of that. And I know a lot of y'all are thinking... I know a lot of y'all are thinking that this sin is too bad. If anyone knew this, that, that'd be it for me. That would be it. But I'm here to tell you tonight that Christ has forgiven it all. Nothing is too bad or too great for, to, for it to be forgiven by him. And if you think you're a pretty good person, which I'm sure a lot of you do, I know a lot of you might be thinking, I haven't done anything crazy bad. I haven't killed anybody. No Hitler then I'd like to tell you that you, everyone in here, has committed 
even if it's just one, which I doubt it, a moral crime against a perfect God with a perfect moral standard. So any one thing that you've done is already too much, and you need forgiveness from God. Now, I do think it's important to mention that you can't go around doing whatever you want because, hey, God will just forgive me. Now, I have a quick story to illustrate this. So imagine there's this father, and he has, he has a son, an average kid, nothing special about him. But this dad has a car that was passed down from his father and the father before that. That's it right there. And this car has been in the family line for a few, a few generations. And the son is now old enough, and his father is about to die because he's old. And um, um, the father passes, he's about to pass the car down to him as soon as he is gone. So he says, all right, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you try it out, but you got to take care of it can't put any cheap E87 gas in there, no cheap oil. You got to take care of this. This is a custom-made car. And the son says, okay, I got it. And he goes out the next day, and he starts drag racing it. He's racing it on the highways. He's seeing how many mirrors he can knock off. And he totals tons of cars, like just all down the highway. And eventually, he makes a hard turn, and he crashes. He totals that car and he's totaled a ton of other cars behind him. But the police show up, and the son gets taken to jail. He's got this huge fine that he has to pay for for reckless driving. He's got a ton of other money that he has to pay for all the cars that he's just destroyed. And he's in prison. He doesn't have anything. He can't do anything. He's stuck there. But the father comes back and he pays all of those fines, and he gets his son out of jail. And then the next day, after he's thanked his father for getting him out of jail, which I'd imagine that's the first thing I would do, he tells his father, all right, thank you. I'm going to go do it again. I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to do it as many times as I can because I know you'll just forgive me. Now, what would we say about that son? That's a bad son. Shame on him. Thank you, Ben. He has taken for granted the forgiveness that his father, all the, all the debt that his father has paid. He's cheapening that forgiveness. And all that to say that we do the exact same thing. We are just like that son. We apologize to God for the things that we've done and we turn right around and do them. And it's really, it's really just cheapening what Christ did on the cross. Romans 3.10 says, We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot make up what we have done without the forgiveness of God. So that story that I told is just like a story in the Bible about the two debtors, how the, the king forgave that massive debt of that first guy. And that first guy turns around to his friend who owes him 
a meager amount and forces him to pay up even though he doesn't have that money. So my final thought for today is who do you need to forgive? And do you need to ask forgiveness from someone? Or do you need to ask someone to forgive you? Sorry about that. If you need to forgive someone or ask for forgiveness, I encourage you to do it this very night. After this is over, I encourage you to talk to that person in person, text them, call them, and ask for forgiveness or forgive them, even if they haven't asked for it. I know there are people in here still holding on to something that someone else in here, somewhere else, has done. And you need to ask for forgiveness. And if you don't forgive them and you just keep going on, holding on to it, or you're just thinking about it, you haven't forgiven them, then that's just Satan wasting your time. He's distracting you from all of God's blessings. And you need to forgive them because you know what they're doing is wrong. Not, you're not just excusing it like, oh, I'll just have to live with it. Just got to forgive them. No, you need to forgive them because you know what they're doing is wrong. If Jesus can forgive his enemies, his friends, and the sins of the entire world, don't you think you can forgive your enemies, your friends, your family, your parents for what they've done? Now, if you feel like you can't forgive, or you just don't want to, that's a lack of gratitude for what Christ did on the cross. It's just like that son. So all I'm here, the main thing I want to leave you with tonight is that we have been forgiven much and Should we forgive?